Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Camp Hell and Awakey is a production of iHeartRadio. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the author and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia or its employees. Due to discussion of traumatic, sexual, and violent content, listener discretion is advised. In the outskirts of Atlanta, just 20 miles west, is the town of Douglasville. It is here that lies what was once the largest medical facility in the state of Georgia, an all-but-forgotten organization that you probably never heard of. The Anawakey Treatment Center for Emotionally Disturbed Youth. At its core, it was meant to help children with emotional behavior issues. He says he enjoys it. They've got a football team and they sponsor him. He says the counseling helps him a lot. He is making almost all A's now. He's very productive in school, very productive at home. It helped our whole family. Pretty much brought us all back together. For some, this is a place where they grew up and learned how to work and live off of the land. It taught me a lot for the future. It taught me a lot. I think you learned responsibility. I think you learned how to be an adult. For others, it represents some of the darkest times of their lives. I still, when I drive Interstate 20 and I get around Chapel Hill Road or Highway 5 or 92 or anything there, my anxiety still goes up. This organization would help its founder, Louis Petter, become one of the most wealthy and powerful people in the region with a reach that would go far beyond the state of Georgia. If you've got the church and you've got the bureaucrats 
and you got the cops, you know, you can pretty much get things done. For decades, this facility would exploit its patients, literally building its massive infrastructure off its patients' backs and leaving a trail of shattered lives behind. It was kind of like a, uh, kind of like an outdoor summer camp where you would, you know, live in some cabins and, uh, you know, do outdoor things and hike and go through the woods and all that kind of stuff. That's really how it was explained. They always seemed to leave out the building of the buildings and the slave labor, or as they called it, vocational therapy. They would have us bend over and they would put a bag of cement on our back, which weighed 94 pounds. And we were to hold that position and carry that bag bent over up a mountain in order to make the footings for the cabins. I would just like to know why we had to go through what we went through, why everything was so covered up, why I was lied to, why I was cheated. Those are questions that still pop up in my head all the time. Anna Wakey was able to expand continuously over two decades, all the while funneling millions of dollars to the upper management of its organization. This can only be attributed to its many ties to people in power, some of which would extend all the way to the White House. He was a player. He was a political player. And he made sure that he maintained those kinds of contacts that would benefit him later. You would see the names of the board members. And there was a lot of ex-Georgia State politicians. He said, well, I don't think you realize how powerful Petter is. A lot of powerful people were involved with Anna Wakey. What you are about to hear is a largely unknown and dark chapter in Georgia's history. One in which thousands of children experienced, and many never recovered from. This is a story of systemic abuse in the most literal sense, with an empire of real estate built upon the backs of its patients, and a system that instead of helping children, exposed them to some of the worst horrors imaginable. Before Jeffrey Epstein, there was Lewis Petter, and the network of people that allowed his exploitive actions. This is the story of Anna Wakey, several weeks, we have received a number of very serious allegations concerning both the facility out there and a the number of individuals involved with it. It was just a form of their therapy. They were told to do it, and at the time, he was 14 and a half, 15 years old. They didn't know any better. I asked him, why are you letting this happen? Why are you covering up for Louis Petter? He had no answers to that question. The thought of having an institution paid in a hospital to be such a despicable place and to do absolutely the contrary of what they should have done. I'm disturbed over the fact that something is still going on at Anawaki. I'm Josh Thane, and this is Camp Hell, Anawaki. I've often been asked while conducting interviews for this podcast, 
How did you find out about Anawaki? My name is Josh Thane. I'm a podcast producer. Much of what I work on are many true crime, documentary-style podcasts, some of which you may have heard. In the summer of 2019, I was on a vacation for my wife's birthday, visiting Disney World and staying in neighboring Clearwater, Florida. During one of our drives, my wife's friend Julia, knowing I had been working in true crime lately, suggested something I'll never forget. You should do a podcast on Anawaki. Anawaki. What does that even mean? What language is it? Initially, I found very little regarding Anawaki. There is currently only a two-paragraph article on the Wikipedia page for it. I continued digging and eventually found a rabbit hole of information, one that would continue to surprise me with the depths of its scandal and those involved. So how was my friend aware of this seemingly forgotten dark piece of history? Well, it starts with the story of a donkey. George was quite a character. He lived with my parents on the horse farm that we had in Douglas County. He was a very interesting donkey. This is Julia's friend, Georgia. She's a close family friend and has known Julia mostly all her life. I grew up in Douglasville, moved to Douglasville when I was approximately six years old with my parents from Tennessee and grew up there my whole life. I'm from Douglasville all the way through. In 1971, when we moved there, I-20 westbound ended at Highway 5 in Douglasville. It did not go any farther than that. It was kind of a sleepy, sleepy little town and, you know, close enough to Atlanta, but get far enough away. Kind of a little bedroom community, I guess. That's Georgia's mother, Pat. I'm Pat Kirkland. I currently live in Grayson, Georgia. When Georgia was a child, the Kirklands adopted a donkey from Anawaki. He came to be a bit of a local celebrity. He did Palm Sunday at Sacred Heart Church. The Sacred Heart Church is a massive Catholic church in Atlanta. Its towering steeple can be seen off of I-75. The altar boys would lead him around and with the palm leaves on his back. After the first year, it went over so big. I mean, the media was there and everything. I mean, George was on TV on the evening news on Palm Sunday services for a long, long time. There was one Sunday he got loose and he was running down Peachtree Street and I guess the news did an article on it and, you know, loose donkey in the street. He was a character. He, He definitely was. How a donkey would come to be involved in this story was a mystery to me. Georgia explains. My father was an Atlanta police officer for the Mountain Patrol, and he had a good friend named Tony Morris, who was a priest at Sacred Heart Catholic Church. Tony used to visit the boys' home to basically talk to the boys, see how things were going with them. And while he was there, he noticed some abuse to this little donkey that they had. So he came back to my father, and he said, I think that the church might need a donkey. And my father said, okay, where are you going to keep it? And he said, well, of course, at your place. So long story short, George, the donkey, came to live with us, and he came from the Anawaki boys' home. Georgia was still just a child while all of this was happening. She remembers seeing George for the first time. 
He said, they don't have a place for him anymore, so we're going to keep him here at our place. And I thought it was cool. I thought, oh, great, you know, little donkey's going to be so cute and stuff. And then when they unloaded him from the trailer, I remember seeing his ears, and I said, Dad, what's wrong with his ears? Why aren't they so burnt? I mean, what, what are all those marks on him? And why is he so skittish? And he said, well, that's, that's a story for another day. He had been abused. He had cigarette burns on him. He had been sexually abused. I didn't understand it at the time. This was in 1978. He went through a lot while he was there, so I can understand why he was like he was. Poor George. Oh, poor George. Had cigarette burns in his ears, on his back. It was very, very apparent that that animal had been abused. I mean, I just can't even imagine. Even with her parents trying to protect her from what they knew was a bad situation, Georgia remembers how she viewed Anna Wakey as a child. Especially in the summer times, I was home with my sister, and we would just get on our horses. It was our way of entertainment, and we would get out and stay gone all day, and we would go past Anna Wakey, you know, riding up. It was less than, you know, maybe five miles from where we lived. I didn't even want to ride the horse past there because it almost seemed like just a cold dungeon. It seemed almost Pollyanna, everything's happy on the outside, but it seemed to me on the inside it was, there was a lot of darkness in there. I heard rumors that the boys were being abused sexually, physically, and to hear, even at my young age at the time, and I was probably the age of some of the boys there, I just remember feeling a lot of sadness for them. People were pretty quiet about it. As the years progressed, it it came out more and more. There was just, you know, a lot of talk about it, and it wasn't good. And I've heard this said many, many times. Those poor boys are much worse off there than they would have been had they, you know, stayed in the situation that they were in. It was a place where they could be abused physically, sexually, mentally abused, and nobody said anything about it. You know, nobody really cared. Who is in charge of this place that would let something like that go on? And I heard that more than once. I mean, I don't know, why wasn't the law involved in it? I think that there was a lot of money in that place, and I think people just didn't want to rock the boat. I remember thinking, wow, how sad that must be for these people that ended up there. They're there with people that should care about them and care about their well-being. It was almost if you were there, you never came out, or if you came out, they came out a different person. And then it, it started to all make sense why this little donkey was how he was. And that story for another time that my father talked about, it all started to make sense. I began to understand, oh, maybe it was offset or displaced aggression that they took out on this little donkey. I do believe animals remember. They remember good times. They remember pain. 
It's my opinion that those boys were doing to George what had been done to them or what was being done to them. And if that's the case, that is awful. Makes me sick to my stomach. How many people's lives, not only the boys that were there, but the parents and everyone else, how many lives were totally destroyed because of that? My thought when I close my eyes and everything is, is that I see that poor animal. That, that's what I see. And yes, human life is certainly much more worthy than animal life is. But, you know, if it had that kind of effect on an animal, what kind of effect did it have on those children? You know, an animal is a living, breathing being that was created by God just like I was. And if he could remember those things, that stayed with those boys all of their life. Even some of them may not even still be living now, but if they are, I can assure you that that still has an impact on their life, their relationship with others and trust issues. You can't ever erase that. How can you look yourself in the mirror knowing that you had a part of that, that you had a part of destroying, and I'm talking about totally destroying another human being? How can you look yourself in the mirror? I don't get it. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. 
I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After hearing George's story, I had to find out more about Anna Wakey. I started combing through newspaper articles from the 1980s through the 90s and couldn't believe how many stories there were. It seemed at one point that Anna Wakey was in the paper almost every day. I kept finding the same name covering this story. I'm Albert Achen. I am a producer now for CBS News in Washington. I was a newspaper reporter for about 15 years and began in my hometown of Savannah, Georgia, went to Richmond and finally to Tallahassee, Florida. And from Tallahassee, after doing a lot of stories about the Anna Wakey situation, I was hired as a consultant for 60 Minutes. Anna Wakey would come to be the story that launched Albert's career into the mainstream. It was the main focus of my journalism from late 1985 until mid 1989. It was the main story I was working on. There were weeks and weeks where it was all I did. I would spend a lot of overtime. I lived near the newspaper and was back and forth, you know, at night keeping up with things. And of course, I had to pick up the Atlanta paper every day and see what they had. And that could change my agenda for the day. So it was a lot of time. Originally, the story involved a small investigation that was taking place in Carabelle, Florida at the time one of three locations Anna Wakey would come to have. It would soon take on a life of its own and become a bigger story than they ever expected. We had a stringer, a part-timer, who was covering Franklin County, anything that went on in Franklin County, which is in the circulation area of Tallahassee. It's west of Tallahassee in the panhandle of Florida. And he was a part-timer and a very good journalist and he came across the story first and did a few pieces about the situation in Carabelle, Florida. And then we began watching that just curiously in the newsroom. And it was exploding at the same time up in the Atlanta papers. So we learned about the Douglasville facility. And at a certain point, the story grew enough where the managing editor asked me to keep an eye on it and to start doing the fundamental reporting because he wanted a regular staff member doing it. It became a bigger story for us than just an occasional piece from the stringer. But after a while, it became important to understand how the system was being manipulated. So in order to understand that, we needed to understand more about what the system was. It's important here to note how Anawaki was perceived by many of the parents who sent their children there. Learning disabilities like ADHD and others, are now well-known ailments with understood treatments of how to deal with them. However, in the 1960s, parents and teachers alike were in the dark on how to address these issues. Enter Anna Wakey. 
It is a place where the upper middle class of Atlanta sends their troubled kids. Initially, it was supposed to be the kinds of children that went there were very, very troubled. People who had severe, debilitating, not necessarily mental illness in the sense of, you know, severe pathologies, severe psychological problems that could be diagnosed medically, but emotional issues which caused behavioral problems. And the behavioral problems that they were dealing with were the kinds of things that in those days, in the 60s, conventional institutions like schools and churches were not capable of dealing with. When the place was established in the early 60s, they may have only been taking very troubled kids. But it seemed to me that by the time I knew anything about it, that it had partly devolved into this place where if you had a kid who was obstreperous and you were financially in good shape, you could send kids there and they would take care of them for you. The Anawake program was based on what is called wilderness therapy. Since the 1940s, wilderness therapy has proven to be truly helpful, with many programs still practicing it today. Anawake managed to take that and twist it into something that would allow counselors and others to run wild with abuse. Fundamental idea behind it was not unlike the fundamental idea behind the Marine Corps. You take somebody, in this case, troubled children, and for lack of a better term, you break them down. The goal is to make them, in this case, self-reliant. It's not like the Marines. It's not to make them do what you tell them to do. It's to make them learn to do what they think they should be doing, to learn a set of values and to learn a way to be self-reliant. It was innovative, but it was also subject for severe abuse. At the top of the hierarchy was Louis Petter, or Doc Petter, as he was known, the founder and president of Anawake. Not a doctor in any actual degree, he and his family would rule over Anawake and its profits, taking whatever they wanted along the way. He had innovative thoughts about child treatment, and that was revolutionary in Georgia. That was very, very commendable and got him a lot of attention and a lot of respect. But he had his own personal troubles and his own fundamental corruption that went across a whole myriad of things. To truly understand Anawake, I had to go back to the beginning to see how this treatment center devolved into what it became. The land of the friendly people. That is said to be what the word Anawake means in Cherokee, one of many Native American names which would be used on its grounds. The irony is not lost. The beginning of the Anawake School for Troubled Boys is a mysterious one. What we do know is that a plot of land was bought in 1962 by Louis Petter and his wife Mabel, along with a co-worker from Petter's days in Savannah, Georgia, named Brett Baxley, or Mr. B. I spoke with one of the very first patients who attended. Hey, I'm Dale Strickland. I grew up here in Atlanta. I've been here since I was about knee had a goat. Grew up here at Seminole Euclid Avenue here in Little Five Points and raised well, raised myself over on Cleveland Avenue after that and then went on out into the world and started digging in. Every patient who attended Anawake was given a number upon entry. This was referred to as their laundry number as it was written on every piece of clothing or personal item they owned. 
These numbers were given chronologically, corresponding to when the patient attended Anawaki. Over the course of this podcast, I spoke with people who had numbers in the 50s into the thousands. My number was S74. One of the first hundred years, I was in the testing phase. The years in Anawaki, I'm a little bit fuzzy on, sometime back in the early 60s. I was young. I'm going to say around 12 or 13, somewhere, maybe 11, I, you know. It was before I started high school, I know that, because I started high school while I was there. Dale says he, like many other survivors of Anawaki, was sent for acting up in school, largely in part to his ADHD. Yeah, I was way out of control. I was never diagnosed with ADD and ADHD because they didn't know anything about it at the time. When they did learn about it, I was long out of Anawaki, but I went there for ADD and ADHD. A lot, lot of lying, stealing, you know, talking back and getting in a lot of trouble and just, you know, pretty much normal kid stuff, but, you know, carrying it to extremes mostly because of my ADD and ADHD. Dale remembers first meeting Lewis Petter before attending Anawaki. At this point in time, Petter did not yet have an office on campus and was using a professional building in downtown Atlanta to conduct his business. We were taken down to the King Professional Building, I was, and my parents walked in Dr. Petter's office. And I was allowed to meet Dr. Petter, and he, you know, shook hands with me. And we talked for a long time there. And then my parents left the room, and then I spoke with Doc by myself. And after that, and I would say about three months later, I was in Anawaki. When first entering Anawaki, residents were cut off from any contact with their family. Well, you first have to go out there, and you've got three months that you can't visit with your parents or anything. I would say that's probably about the worst part of it, you know, waiting those three months. You're trying to adjust, you know, and, and get everything together. I mean, you can write letters and stuff and, and send them mail and everything, but you weren't allowed to view them for 90 days. Being one of the first attendees of Anawaki, Dale was the first to be subjected to what was referred to at the time as the quiet room. This room would serve as the equivalent of solitary confinement and would go on to be an essential part of the entry process to Anawaki. This would later be called E&O, or Evaluation and Observation. I'm the only one that went there at this time. I was the only one in there. I had gotten a fight with somebody, can't remember who it was, and they just snatched my butt up and put me in what we called the quiet room. It was a stainless steel mesh with hard edges around it, like a channel iron, you know. And I was in there, I want to say, for maybe about three or four weeks. Oh, yeah, like a month. Really have nobody to talk to but yourself. Nobody comes by and visits you. They bring you your food when it's time to have that and all. And other than that, that was it. Kind of like a regular jail cell. It was solitary confinement. Got my first taste at 13. <laughs> so. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dale remembers what the day-to-day schedule was like for the first patients of Anawakey. You start out in the morning, and you get up and you have to make your beds up, okay? You were responsible for waking yourself up, and then somebody run around the campus and say, all right, let's go, come on, we only got five minutes. If you don't get up like you're supposed to, the first place you go to is the reality barn. That's where your buddies all pick you up on your blanket and walk you down to the creek and they chunk your butt in it. That's called the reality barn, okay? One time that happened to me, that's only one time. Everybody would all meet down by the reality barn. Then we'd leave from there and you'd walk around the lake and go over to the lodge and you would sit out there. Your group goes in at a certain time and then after you have your meal, you'd come back out and you would go down by the tool shed, which is a ways down. And when you get down by the tool shed, you stop down there and you check out the tools that you plan to work on, whatever project for that day. And you check them out and you can go over and go to work. If it was cutting down a tree, you cut down a tree. If it was putting molding up in a cabin, you was putting molding up in a cabin. Whatever project deemed necessary to be done that week is what you was working on. It's hard to imagine groups of children, no older than 10 or 11, being able to handle some of the work which Dale describes. This would be hard physical labor for a grown man, much less an untrained child. One common thing I would continue to see in my interviews is the long-term effects this work would have on the bodies of the survivors. We dug a porta potty. <laughs> We've uh, 
cut down trees and split logs and shaved them all down where they were smooth enough to sit on. Uh, we put molding up in the cabins. We fixed wiring in the cabins. Then some people would put up their tents or build the A-frame cabins over there and uh, build A-buildings. And once the block was up, we'd go in there and set all the trusses and run the roof out on it and everything in there. We did all of it. I learned the first patients of Anawaki were actually helping build the campus for the place which they were supposed to be attending, including Doc's office. Clear up to the time that we built the A building out there on the campus, and then that's when he moved his office out there. And the layout for the uh, building out there for him to be in was already laid out and planned out. We just had to build it. This construction, done by the early patients, would become the inner structure from which all other Anawaki business would be done over the years. It would also serve as a template for how to further expand Anawaki's reach. Building the A building was one of the biggest things that we've done. Then they went and built the lodge after that, the new lodge. Some more campuses got built. Everything was still the same. You're still building, you're still putting stuff up. When you got through, you could go, Man, did you see that? You know, we did. Look what we did, you know? And we were proud to show it off, you know? Just like any normal person would be proud. I asked Dale if he considers the work he was doing at such a young age as a form of child labor. No, because we were, we were learning to be responsible adults. It taught me a lot for the future. It taught me a lot. We learned how to do stuff. We learned how to be the better or the best, I guess, by knowing before we even got to the project, you know. We knew what to do, what tools to use, uh, how to get it done, what you could and couldn't do. I think you learned responsibility. I think you learned how to be a, an adult. We built Anawaki. We were proud of what we'd done, you know. Not only was Anawaki getting their labor for free from its patients, it also came at a cost to the parents involved. Even in the 70s, this was not cheap and it only became more expensive. My mother sold a three-bedroom, two-bath home. My granddaddy built her up at Lake Lanier and paid him over $90,000. That's back in the 70s, huh? That's a lot of money. She shouldn't have lost that home either, but she'd paid it. Dale remembers Lewis Petter, the founder of Anawaki, fondly. The guy was very, very likable. Very likable, you know? I didn't feel like I had to throw no... You know how you throw your automatic defenses up? I didn't feel like I had to do that, you know? I didn't ever feel like I had to protect myself or hide anything from him. And he would just point blank look at you and ask you a question, and you just answered it. I felt very comfortable around him. Dale stands by his statement that he was never abused while at Inawaki and never saw any abuse happen. For him, it was a learning experience that he feels helped him in life. I asked him if he thought there could have been inappropriate behavior even if he himself did not see it. You know, you have to ask the question, okay, because these young guys would, would go on the weekends to spend the night with Doc or Doc's house or whatever. Nobody ever really claimed them to be homosexual things, but it was thought of that way by a couple of people. But the ones that went were all very perfectly willing to go. I'm not saying it's not possible, I'm not even saying it's, it's probable, is that we don't know because we really wasn't there. Dale claims that anytime something inappropriate happened, it was dealt with swiftly. In his time at Anawaki, Dale recalls one counselor that was removed from the staff. He's, his name is George Limmer. He lived down here somewhere. I don't know where now, but 
by now he's got to be well in his 70s or 80s. He's got to be. He just was hitting up on trying to get him to play with him and all, you know. And any time that was brought up, all we know is they come up missing the next day. It just, it's, yeah, it's disgusting. It shouldn't have been going on. Dale was a young child during his time at Anawaki, and his experiences stayed with him his whole life. When the Anawaki scandal would later come to light, Dale visited Doc himself to see if he believed Petter could be capable of what he had heard. I know it's hard for people to understand, but when you find somebody good in your life that you feel like did something for you in your life, you're going to protect them at all costs. It's what you do. I wanted to know the truth. And I could look at him when he told me. And he knew I knew it. So walked up to him, hugged his neck, then hugged Mabel's neck, and sat down in the kitchen with him. And they started explaining it to me. And I said, you know what? It don't matter to me what you say. My times for you were this. Okay? You're two of the most special people in my life ever have been. And what other people say don't make a shit to me, and it didn't, you know? That's what happened. Well, naturally, he's going to say he didn't do it, and that's where it's at. He said he didn't do it. He must not have done it. But once again, I read through bullshit real well, okay? You believed him? No. Now I can't talk like that. That'd be bad. Dale's story is one of many I've heard in the past year regarding people's experience at Anawaki. Each one different, many of them heartbreaking. When I first began looking into this story, I had no idea where it would take me. It seemed at each turn when I thought I knew the whole story, another fact would emerge that would turn it on its head again. In the past year, I've interviewed dozens of Anawaki survivors, government and state officials who were involved, and even some former counselors. They all seemed to have one thing in common, and that was that nobody truly knew the whole story. This season on Camp Hell, Anawaki. Think Anawaki and you see Dr. Lewis Petter. Dr. Petter, who's not a doctor, and yet lorded over his youthful patients as though by background and training, he was properly prepared to help them. It was a big deal. Nothing happened at the sheriff's office. We went to the state child welfare program. They didn't want to hear it. We went to the newspaper, the Atlanta Journal. We went to an attorney all by ourselves, and we went in, and he didn't want any part of it. We tried everything we could. Department of Family and Children's Services actually placed boys in that camp, even though they knew about what he did in Savannah. I can't say that we dropped the ball, but I also can't tell you that we did not. If an agency does not report any reports that they might have of alleged child abuse, it is very difficult for us to pick that up. It's certainly the biggest case I was involved in from how many people were affected, how many people were hurt, how much time was involved, how much resources were involved. The GBI is also considering sending agents to Mexico, where Mr. Petter owns property, as it broadens its investigation into the Anawaki operation. This could be a good place. This could be a wonderful place. But it's not. Anawaki founder Louis Petter's bond has now been set at $1 million. Mr. Petter, do you have any comment about the charges against you? Yes, I have comment, except that he's innocent. 
Up until recently, charges of sexual misconduct had not been leveled against the Anawake facility for girls here in Rockmark. Now it too has come under fire, with former female patients alleging they were victims of sexual abuse. Many of us are already deceased, and we're only in our early to late 50s. And it hurts me real bad to hear people say that my father cheated them. My father has cheated no one there at Anawakey, and I'll testify to that. These are the kinds of things Lewis Petter will do. Lewis Petter trains his lackeys to do dirty tricks on people to try and hurt them. She thinks they're hurting him. And I spent three months in the hospital. Remember the name Anawakey. In the months and years to come, it may stand for a story, the tragic half of which has yet to be told. Camp Hell Anawakey was created and hosted by Josh Thane with producer Miranda Hawkins and executive producers Alex Williams and Matt Frederick. The soundtrack was written and performed by Josh Thane and Adrian Barry. Archival footage provided by WSB and CBS News. Find us on Instagram at Camp Hell Pod. That's C-A-M-P-H-E-L-L-P-O-D. Educate yourself about the issue of child abuse and things that you should look for at the Darkness to Light website, d2l.org. That's D, the number two, L dot O-R-G. Camp Hell and Awakey is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.